0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Physiology at the Aspire Academy, Marco Cardinali. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really privileged this morning to speak to Marco Cardinali, who is the head of uh, sports physiology at Aspire. So welcome to the podcast, Marco. Thank you, Rob. It's great to have you. So would you mind giving everyone a little bit of a, an introduction yourself and maybe a little bit what you've done in the past and what, you, what you're doing at the minute?
1: Okay, um, I'll, I'll try to do it very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> So education-wise, I I started studying in Italy, where I got my first degree in uh, sports science. Uh, Then I went to study a master's degree in the United States, in Alabama, at the U.S. Sports Academy, uh, where I I then did sports science with a major in coaching um, and a thesis on neuromuscular fatigue, Uh, and then I did my Ph.D. in Hungary at Semmelweis University with a With the thesis on um, vibration vibration exercise which was my main uh, topic of research uh, when i was actively involved in that that type of thing but uh, over my career i've I've been mostly a sports science strength strength and conditioning coach uh, jack of all trades uh, in the old times when there weren't too many people employed in uh, in sport Uh, but i was also a coach so i'm qualified coach in few sports but i was mainly coaching in track and field and handball. I was the head coach of the Great Britain men's handball team in 2003. Uh, and we won a bronze medal in the Challenge Trophy, which is the uh, championship, European championship for minor nations. So uh, that's my coaching stint up, up to a national team. Um, so I come from a mixed background, I'm, I'm a bit of a coach and, and then a scientist. I worked in university as well. And, and I've always been very active in research, uh, so I, I hold uh, honorary appointments in different institutions and I still try to be a bit active uh, publication-wise. Uh, and then before joining Qatar, um, joining Aspiring Qatar as um, head of sports physiology, I was the head of science and research of the British Olympic Association from 2005 uh, to 2013. So I was head of science at the Beijing, Vancouver and uh, London 2012 games, uh, overseeing science support to 26 summer sports and seven winter sports. So I was very fortunate to be in Britain at the time where uh, there was a great investment, big buzz about Olympic sports, but also exposed to a large variety of sports and sporting cultures and high-performance sport um, at its best, as we've seen from the latest results from Rio, um, so I was fortunate to be in a in a thriving community, uh, and then and then I moved uh, after the London Games, pretty much a few months after year to Qatar, where we have a very ambitious program of uh, trying to become the best sports academy in the world by 2020. So very very ambitious long term vision for Qatar, and uh, we are working with uh, very young athletes. So we work with athletes age 12 to 18 uh, to develop them into. Uh, not only sporting champions, but champions in life. Uh, and also recently we've been starting to work with uh, uh, the Athletics Federation also to support the senior program. And this year we had four of our former students that qualified uh, for the Olympic Games in Rio and one came home with a medal, Bar Shim in the high jump that got the silver. So very exciting time here in Qatar and uh, very exciting project.
0: So what was what was the nature of your job? At the BOA, I just want to give people a bit of an insight. I know, I know we chatted about it before, but just a bit of an insight into what the what the job entailed.
1: Yeah, it's. I have to say, it changed over the years. When I first arrived at the BOA in two thousand and five, my focus was more to be a like a research manager of the Olympic Medical Institute. So, trying to activate and execute research projects that were relevant to sports, but also to help the rehabilitation center that we were running there. And then within a year, it changed when Clyde Woodward joined the BOA. uh, My job title changed to other sports science and research. So uh, again, I had a more expanded role to look into specific projects to aid sports um, and sports performance, work alongside UK sports research and innovation team and, and work with the institutes. So the Scottish Institute of Sport, the Welsh Institute and the IS. Um, to support athletes with project-based support and also my my main role was to prepare and um, and deliver sports science services at the Olympic Games and in holding camps. So the first big project was the holding camp in Macau uh, leading into the Beijing Games and then uh, holding camp in Lake Placid and uh, Olympic Games in Vancouver. Uh, and then uh, uh, holding camp in Loughborough and Olympic Games in London. So uh, mostly project-based support, so I couldn't be involved day-to-day with any sport because I had to look after 26 summer and seven winter sports. (laughs) Um, But the day-to-day came at the Games. Um, So very, very exciting time to be there. I had so many amazing colleagues. uh, Looking back to what we've accomplished in in eight years has uh, has been absolutely amazing.
0: So coming from someone who's very much behind the inside of the of Team GB, and apologies to anyone that's not listening from uh, from Great Britain, because we're going to talk a little bit about it just because of the success recently. But why why has there been so much success, especially over the last well um, couple of Olympics uh, at Team GB, and what what's kind of changed, if anything's changed?
1: Yeah, uh, I think the biggest change is the lottery funding. Lottery funding has allowed uh, most of all athletes to be full-time. And that's a game changer, you know, when athletes, especially the, the ones that have the capacity, to, the capability to win a medal, can be full-time. That, that is a game changer. Uh, funding has also helped to professionalize some of the national governing bodies, to employ coaches full-time. And also to create a network of experts that could support sport on a daily basis. You know, many, many national governing bodies before didn't have a lot of access to physiotherapy service, to medicine, to science, whether now... Thanks to the the service that the institutes do, uh, you know they can access uh, very good expertise uh, when and if it's needed. So funding, I think, is the is the is the main thing uh, because athletes are full time; they can dedicate their life to it, and and they have a number of people full time around them to help them uh, accomplish what they can. And then the second thing has been. Because of the funding and because of the drive and the ambition uh, to finish first fourth in the medal table, which was the ambition in London, and then now with the results of being second, which is uh, unbelievable, there has been this drive to look for things that could make the difference of course, legal, uh, things that can make the difference. Um, And so there's always been, when I was there, there was a a community that was meeting regularly. So all the key sports scientists of the key sports would meet regularly to look at things that could be done better, projects to improve performance. So there is a culture of high performance, trying to get better, trying to look where the gains are, and trying to improve the service and support that goes to athletes. And then last but not least, uh, I think having experienced uh, two or three different nations, uh, the, the way the Olympic team is organized going into the Games, is, I, I think is the best organized team in the world, probably on par with the US team. And... Uh, so when athletes get to games time, they are really very well looked after. There is a fantastic environment that is built for them. They have access to the best training facilities near to the Olympic villages. They have access to the best services when, they're, when the games are happening. So uh, it seems that the system is good enough to, to, to help athletes accomplish what, what they need to accomplish. So it, it, there's a lot of people that are involved from different parts of the world. There's been a first um, an employment drive, uh, employing people from abroad because there wasn't the experience in uh, in the UK at the time. But now there's a lot of young practitioners that came through the system that have shown that they can do it incredibly well. And, uh, I, I hate to name names because I always miss a lot of people, but. Ben Rosenblatt, they did so well with the British, um, uh, the British team, the hockey, the hockey team. They won gold in the women's tournament. Uh, Ben, I employed Ben as a as an intern on a fast track practitioner program. I think must have been 2000. six or seven as the first rehabilitation manager which is a, a position I created in the British Sporting System and of course Ben has taken on so much on board and is done incredibly well and developed into a, a fantastic practitioner and there are so many like that so in a way it's good to see a bit of legacy mm-hmm. um, that, that is going. Um, so I think the secret is this it's uh, funding uh, a system that craves for accountability, so everything has to be justified, uh, and, and the community of people that are willing to, to do things. And last but not least, it's, uh, the UK is actually very good from a scientific standpoint. There are some outstanding universities, not only in sports science, but in many other fields. So in my previous job, we could access to expertise that other countries can only dream of, uh, and, and this is, I think, another thing that helps uh, the British Olympic team.
0: So how do we? How does the? Uh, how does Team GB be? How does Team GB follow this? So from a performance point of view, how are we going to move forward into 2020 and do even better?
1: Uh, I have to say it's. And this is going to be an interesting one because, of course, the Olympics are a bit different from other olympic games because of the russian effect so <laughs> russia couldn't compete in, in quite a few sports and that has changed the the, the medal availability in the way um, with more strict doping controls uh, i think things will change for the good of sport so a nation that does things clean like like the uk can only get better the key to all this will of course be funding because now you know, many countries are looking at what the Team GB has accomplished, uh, which means practitioners and coaches uh, could be uh, approached by other countries and leave. So that could be a brain drain if there are not the resources to retain the people that have, have made this result. So this is my main concern at the moment. That I just hope that success will reward uh, the people that are involved day to day in delivering the medals, uh, rather than uh, people that are completely detached and just associated uh, to the success. That, that's my biggest fear: it's the retention of uh, knowledge.
0: It seems to me that on in the interviews post event, there seems to be so many more athletes. I don't know if it, just because it's four years ago and I've forgotten, but acknowledging the the team behind the team, and even more photos of. Coaches and interviews with coaches and and things like that, which is always great, obviously.
1: It's uh, yeah. I I think this is an effect of the social media. You know, yeah. uh, Four years ago was way less than it is today, but also there's a genuine recognition that there's a lot of people that help athletes to make things happen, and and the first ones are are the coaches, of course, that that live and breathe the sport on a daily basis. and, and actually, they are they are the receiving. And when things don't go incredibly well, yeah, it's, it's it's been very good to see all these things recognised. Uh, it's good for, for the community that we are involved in. But also, it, you know, it's true. It's uh, nowadays an athlete cannot win on his own. He needs he or she needs. Uh, a number of people around them to make sure that they can express and manifest their talent when it matters. And so recognizing all the people around them is very important.
0: Mm-hmm. So that leads me nicely onto uh, an article which you wrote. Um, I can't remember. I think it was quite a while ago um, titled Reflections About Coaching, s and Emergence of Cargo Culture Science in Sport. I just wanting to get your kind of updated view on on the industry really and Um, and where you think it's going and, and how a practitioner may succeed in, um, air air quotes. Okay. Um,
1: yes. You know, I, I talk about it quite a lot, actually with a lot of colleagues and probably I'm getting old because I start to say (laughs) in in the good old times, (laughs) um, but I'll say that, you know, when I started in this career, many sports didn't have the resources or, or were not aware of using various practitioners. So if you got lucky, some professional teams would hire definitely a doctor, definitely a physio and and a sports scientist that was doing everything from strength and conditioning to performance analysis to a bit of nutrition. So this this were the, the day-to-day roles, so doing testing, training, monitoring, a bit of nutrition and, and helping with the performance analysis. So this person was embedded in the sport on a day-to-day basis. I think what's been lost with the over-specialization of things is that there is a risk that many organizations employ a large number of people with small jobs to do, and because everyone has to justify its existence, then people make a big sto- big fuss about their role, uh, and, and actually it doesn't help pushing things together because things are disjointed. So, uh, you know, at the moment, the way I see the strength and conditioning community worries me a little bit, because... To me, I was a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, I was prescribing sessions. I was uh, supervising sessions. I was testing athletes. So I was in the gym for real. Um, and to me, it was very clear what I was there to do. Uh, I was there to get people stronger in the key movements or activities that were relevant to the sport they were performing in. And I was trying to make them stronger enough to sustain the training loads so that was my philosophy it was very simple i need to get this guy or this girl strong in what they need to do and i need them to be able to sustain the training and competition loads and i need to make sure they don't break down it was as simple as that whether nowadays i hear all these philosophies about what you believe in coaching this or coaching that, if it's the double, double knee bend phase or if it is one, one knee bend or if it's overhead or not overhead, which is just petty, is irrelevant to me. The, the relevance is, is this person got, has, has this athlete got stronger, yes or no, and in what? And how much of that strength can be transferred to the sporting event they need to? And is the athlete more robust and able to sustain the loads? Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, so I think we're getting lost in philosophies, mambo-jambo, uh, wrong terminology. Uh, there are still a lot of people that test athletes, they don't understand the difference between force and power. Uh, there's a lot of terms that get thrown out there that don't exist or, or have no scientific basis for, for their existence. Um, so there's a lot of semantics where things get lost in, so it, it worries me, which is going, so to me, the strength and conditioning community, instead of leaning more towards science and evidence, it seems to me that at times leans more towards, you know, a bit coaching, but the the wrong side of it, you know, the right side of coaching is about teaching somebody to do things better. That's coaching to me. You know, you you develop somebody to do things better. You coach them to get better. But I, sh- I should have some evidence, like, did they get better for real or is it just in your head? Uh, whether now I see a lot of things going more into, you know, black magic type of thing, or they got really better at this and there is no evidence to sustain that, or I'm, I'm doing this technique because, you know, I'm doing this functional thing, shaking a rope because it's going to get better at running. And it's like, well... Really. Um, so I, I think there's a tendency to overcomplicate and, and there's a tendency of not having evidence. And, and sadly, because of the internet, there is a lot of things that are put out there that are absolutely rubbish. So that worries me um, in the strength and conditioning community. But, you, you know, there there is some outstanding practitioners. And then I think the difference between good and bad practitioners is still the the guys that can have evidence of thinking and gathering evidence are still the best practitioners to me. So it doesn't mean that you always get it right, but you have enough evidence to show what doesn't work as well. Uh, and I think this is what's
0: missing. So do you think coaches are overcomplicating it because of that specialization and, and the the necessity to justify people's jobs, justify your job?
1: I, I think there's a plethora of things. Uh, one is, of course, You know, if you bamboozle the athlete at times, uh, you know, they they might believe in what what you told them and and they get better, which is, you know, an outstanding placebo effect. And I think it's actually a good quality a coach should have. You know, a coach should convince athletes that what they're doing is absolutely what they need to do. And, 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 you know, if you have that great relationship, it's a great thing. So I don't see any negatives there. The negatives I see is when people propose training sessions or training regimes with actually no understanding if it works or not or no evidence for it just because somebody else does it or because I, I think it's good. But then they don't collect enough information to see and assess if this approach is actually working and what it's doing. And so I, I sit in many presentations at times of SNC coaches or coaches that talk about their philosophies. But I don't see any evidence of their philosophies working, and sometimes they only refer to uh, a result of an athlete in a competition, which many times is actually a complete fluke, has got nothing to do with what has mm-hmm. gone in gym again because there is no evidence to prove it. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I, I, I'm probably because I'm very, I'm a very logical mind, and I'm a very numbers-based person. You know, to me, if I have an athlete squat. I want to know if they are getting better at what. So are they squatting more, are they squatting faster, are they gaining range and I want to quantify rather than say, you know, we've been doing all these functional movement and stuff and he's got his range got better. Yeah, but it, did it <laughs> <laughs>
0: by how much and how did you measure it? So, so, so these are these are the kind of questions. So do you think we'll move back towards the more generalist or do you think we're just going to get more specific and more jobs? Uh, you know, it's, I think it's, it's a funding
1: issue. Um, again, it, I don't think it's sustainable to have five or six practitioners full-time embedded in a program, um, especially when there is not much for them to do. So it's not sustainable, it's not financially viable. Um, I still think that, especially in smaller operations, when there is smaller athletics groups, you're better off with one performance scientist, I call so somebody that is able to do the day-to-day things very well. And the day-to-day things are very simple, you know, day-to-day things with athletes are about making sure they sleep well, they are hydrated, they, they eat well, uh, and then when they come to training, it's about monitoring the training load and generating reports for the coaches, doing some testing when and if is necessary, writing the strength and conditioning program and supervising and assessing their progression. So these are day-to-day activities that anybody with a sports science degree can and should do. Uh, then the real expertise needs to come when there is a specific problem. So once a, a nutritionist has assessed the nutrition needs of a group of athletes and has implemented uh, a nutritional plan, what is he or she is going to do on a daily basis? Just measure if they are hydrated. That's something that the performance <laughs> scientists can do. But where the real expertise is needed is, okay, you have maybe two athletes that need to lose weight, three athletes that need to gain weight, one athlete that has uh, uh, some problems with, uh, I don't know, low vitamins and, and vitamin D. And you have another athlete that has metabolic issues. You know, These are the problems that you really need the real expert to come in when you bring in a nutritionist uh, as a consultant, or you have an athlete that has a specific problem with the technique, that's when you need a really good biomechanist to to analyze and solve it. But on a day-to-day basis, what is, what is a biomechanist going to do? Unless it's a highly technical sport that requires a lot of technical reviews, I can't see the day-to-day justification for that. So I think there will be probably more jobs for people that are able to do... A bit more and better day to day, but also are humble and knowledgeable enough to understand when they need to bring in the real experts and also where to find them. I think that's the key.
0: Mm-hmm. So for young SNC coaches and maybe maybe not even young SNC coaches, your your advice would be to to branch out and SNC coaches develop the knowledge of nutrition and things like that. I, I think the first thing is um,
1: the SNC coaches. Should be very first they should think about becoming very very good at being SNC coaches first <laughs> and that would be yeah. and, and that that's a good thing to have uh, also because nowadays there is the tendency to employ people mainly looking at the strength and conditioning aspects uh, with other people looking at other areas so so to me being very good at coaching programming and assessing the effectiveness of the program are the three key skills that SNC coaches should focus on and, and then, um, branching out will depend on their, you know, their, their knowledge, their abilities, how they develop some other aspects. Uh, you know, you might have a spending conditioning coach that is very good at analyzing movement. So that could have implications for performance analysis in a particular sport. So I think that's, that, that's a good possibility. Uh, but I still think that many should still focus on doing. Straining conditioning very, very well before they move on and branch out to other areas.
0: I'm just going to take a very quick break in the middle of my chat with Marco. So in the second half of this episode, you can look forward to Marco having a little chat around deconstructing uh, an SSC program and actually figuring out what is essential and, and what needs to be there and what what doesn't need to be there. We also discuss uh, something that he's been very vocal about, which is the use of technology uh, in sports science. So, both really interesting subjects, uh, which I'm sure you'll really enjoy. So, it's been great to get Marco on, and a massive thanks to Alex Natera for making the introduction and hopefully helping me to uh, get the most out of of the interview with Marco and and really drilling down into what what info we can I can kind of prize out of him um, because there's obviously so much there with so much experience. So this was this episode was recorded uh, a couple of days after the end of the Olympics, hence the the big chat around Team GB. Um, but it was it was great to get Marco's insight uh, on air, on and off air around his work with the uh, British Olympic Association. So that was great. Um, but just before we get into uh, part two. Of the podcast uh, just want to say a massive thanks to vald performance and train with push for sponsoring the episode today so if you are interested in getting to know anything about uh, the nord board you can go to vald performance that's vald performance.com i'd also encourage you to check out the blog at train with push which is at trainwithpush.com if you are in the UK uh, and you are interested in getting a push band, which I would uh, highly recommend I've got on myself you can go to uh, proformance.pro and if you put Pacey Perform in the voucher code box upon checkout that will entitle you to free delivery so I hope you enjoy the chat uh, in part 1 with uh, Marco and I'm sure you will enjoy part 2 with him as well so speak to you soon and enjoy So when it comes to the uh, SNC program, one one thing that I wanted to mention that I, that I fired over to you in the email was the process you go through to to figure out what matters and what doesn't matter. How would you how would you run through run us through that process?
1: Um, uh, the the first steps uh, for me, uh, I've always been first to understand the sport I'm working in. And by understanding the sport I'm working in, is not only about, okay, finding all the scientific literature about it, because that's only part of the story, uh, but it's also spending time with the coach to understand the jargon, uh, how he or she coaches, how he or she structures the training, mm-hmm. and how he or she communicates to the athlete, and then how the athletes operate within that sporting culture. You know, every, every sport I've been involved in they have their specific cultures, they have their specific jargon, they have their specific way of describing things that sometimes are not what you read in the books. Uh, actually, most of the times aren't. So, so you need, to, you need to, to learn from being there. Uh, and then, of course, you need to find out what's been done about it. There are a lot of sports that don't have a lot of scientific literature on it. Right? You know, if, you, if you're working in snowboard cross, Apart from a lot of papers on injuries, you're not going to find many papers telling you what are the physiological demands or what forces go through when you are doing snowboard cross. Uh, so what do you do? <laughs> that means you have to generate that information yourself. So this this is when you need to apply science to find out more about the sport you're going to work in. Um, so this is the process. Perform a very thorough needs analysis what needs to be done identify the gaps in knowledge and try to fill them up. So if there is a gap in knowledge, uh, I keep going up to the snowboard cross example. If if nobody knows what the physiological demands of doing a snowboard cross race are, then you need to go and measure it in your athletes. And that will tell you what's happening. And that will drive the process with the coach to uh, develop the program. And also you need to ask the coaching community, okay, well, why do you coach them that way? Why do you think it's appropriate? And in many sports where there is not a lot of um, information about, coaching happens by transfer of culture from athletes to coaches. So athletes experience something, then they retire, they become coaches, and they keep repeating. And it gets into this vicious circle where everyone around the world does the same thing because that's all they've experienced until somebody comes with a fresh pair of eyes and tries something else and then everyone follows (laughs) <laughs> so uh, so it's uh, I think this is the process of discovery going through experiences in the field and then trying to find as many information as possible on, on the science of it and when they're not there, try to find somebody that can help to to describe it with science
0: mm-hmm. so another thing I wanted to mention was um and something i think I think you've been quite vocal about is the the technology in sport do you i mean I just put on the email a history lesson question mark i mean and it's something that you've mentioned quite a bit, especially around the um kind of velocity based training and things like that. do you just want to give us a bit of a, a history lesson of of your experience using technology uh in the, in the uh, in the roles that you've had
1: yeah it's um well my my personal history my my first job was in uh, nineteen ninety four and in 1993, uh, I, I graduated in, in my first degree uh, in Italy. And I was working um, probably one of the first laboratories of strength research uh, with Professor Bruno Cacchi, which at the time was the technical director of the Italian Track and Filthy. Uh, and we had a lab that was assessing strength, upper body, lower body strength. And the equipment we were using was a variety of devices uh, mounted on Smith Machines type of equipment with uh, photocells that were measuring the velocity of the bar or the velocity of the implements. We had a device to measure shot putters, uh, a device in which on the rail we mounted a variety of objects that could be thrown. So we were looking at upper body uh, power and lower body power. And also we were using the contact mats, which were developed by Carmelo Bosco in the 70s. So, you know, measuring jumping decline in jumping and power ability, uh, power up during throws, the decline in velocity during the throws with different combinations of certain reps was something we were doing every day. And it was 93. <laughs> uh, and then in 94, um, professor Bosco developed a device uh, called the BioRobot, which provided real time feedback when people were lifting, he wrote a paper about it in 1995, a validation paper. Of this technology and, and it's amazing we, we've been using it for years uh, on a day-to-day basis testing athletes and also we had athletes training in our facility uh, you know athletes that were going into the Barcelona Olympics uh, were coming to our facility to train and, and be assessed with this kind of method so we were telling them You know, what was the load with the highest power output? We were telling them when their uh, repetitions were going down uh, at 95% of their maximum speed or 95% of the maximum power. So this was 92, 93. (laughs) Um, And at the time to run something like that, you had a very large uh, desktop computer on Windows 3.1. This is really (laughs) archaeology of uh, computing, which took uh, a bit to boot up. And then the software was uh, written in MS-DOS. So it, it didn't look great, but the printouts were, uh, you know, series, as, series and series on numbers and then Excel was into the first versions, so you could graph few things. So it, you know, this, this was used a lot. Uh, and then uh, Rob Newton developed the Innervation System, uh, which became very popular, again similar to, to what we were doing. And then there is now a plethora of accelerometers and coders and iPhones that you can attach. but. It's fascinating how people talk about it as a new thing when we were really doing it in 92, 93 and I'm sure before us there, there were other people doing it in other countries. So sometimes we go with fashion and we think we are, we are innovating things, uh, but in reality that these things have been, there, have been there before. And other equipment that I was using was uh, heart rate monitors because the first ones came out at the time and they were the first, the first uh, portable lactate analyzers. So this technology has been around for, for ages and still there are people that, you know, think it's new to to look at heart rate or heart rate variability or, or, or take a blood sample. I, I think we're still waiting for the big step change in terms of uh, technology uh, the only big step change has been GPS is becoming much more available and easy and smaller and with good batteries that could be worn by players but uh, in many sports we're still waiting for it you know in indoor sports there is still not much that can be done to really accurately track and quantify the movement of players and in terms of uh, biological measurements there is a very limited information that we can get
0: so what do you see that big, apart from the ones you've just mentioned, how, what do you see that big step change being? Of the next couple of years?
1: I'm, I'm writing a, a review at the moment for um, International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, uh, which is uh, pretty much uh, uh, a summary of my talk here at the Training Lot Conference. But um, I'm adding a lot of information on a lot of skin-based sensors that are being developed at the moment. I think the big step change will come, when we are able to understand more how the body copes with training loads and exercise prescriptions. You know, at the end of the day, when we prescribe a training program, we are providing the athlete with a dose of activity and we need to understand the response. And and what we've been limited now has been, you know, how, how does the body react to that? So our, our, all our ways of measuring this are either invasive or they are, linked to biology, but they are not. So if you think about session RPE, you ask athletes, how do you feel about it? And that's a measure of internal load, but it doesn't really tell us the biology of it. And it doesn't really tell us how we should change the training dose or what we should change in training dose. So I think step change will come when these things will become wearable, small, with new batteries and would we'll be able to tell us more about the biology of athletes.
0: So. From your experience, what do you, how, how do you see the, the implementation, implementation of, of new technology by, by coaches?
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a challenging one because I think the coach, coaching is changing. Is, is moving more towards becoming a profession in many countries, which is a good thing, which will require specific qualifications and codes of conduct and all that kind of stuff. Uh, whether in, in too many places is still a bit of a, somebody that is a volunteer and, and then turns into a, a semi-professional. Uh, but you know there is no way to develop CPD and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and also, f- few don't even have degrees in the, in their field. So I think it's moving uh, as a profession, uh, which means. More and more new coaches would come from experience with technology, so they would be a, a lot more open to use it than others. But the challenge with all these technologies to be able to find out the technology that works from the technology that doesn't work, understand the limitations and the validity of the data, and also deal with numbers. This is the biggest difficulty that we will face, or we are facing now, is we might generate a lot of numbers, but we have to make sense of them very, very quickly to be able to make decisions. So one of the skills that new coaches or practitioners will need to have is the ability to handle data sets and make sense of them. I think this is one of the biggest skills that people have to learn, and then transform them into meaningful information that can either help the coach or the athlete. Because at the end of the day, you are trying to influence... What the athlete is doing, so all that information needs to be able to influence that.
0: So, as practitioners, how do we go about figuring out whether that tech works or not? Obviously, it's easy to think, "Oh, that club's doing X, Y, and Z," so we need to get, we need to do that. But how do you actually figure that out before um, having bought the kit and spent all the cash, figuring it works uh, yes. or not?
1: Well, the, the due diligence is always this one. First, is there any, any information about the validation of, of the equipment? Is the equipment valid? Is, is the equipment? Does the equipment provide reliable information? Uh, and is the system accurate? You know, every system will have uh, a, a, an error. You need to be able to understand and quantify the error. Uh, some systems will be less valid and reliable than others. So that's the due diligence somebody has to do. My advice is if there is no information about reliability and validity uh, you should stay away from that uh, unless you have the resources to assess it. So if you have access to gold standards you can do some little validity studies yourself just to make sure that you know how valid and reliable it is. Uh, and then the other thing is once you, uh, once you use such equipment or data gathering devices to understand what to do with the numbers. Um, because also validity and reliability is, a, is you know, as a relative concept. Most of the validity and reliability studies are done on 20 subjects, so maybe those numbers are relevant to that population only. You still need to check in your population how that equipment works and if it can give you something.
0: So just moving back to your to your role at Aspire, you've obviously gone from working with um, working to with juniors at the minute. Um, what's the What's the lessons learned from your from your time working with obviously elite seniors to then pulling that into the uh, into the kind of junior realm? Uh, is uh, for for me has been like going back to my roots because when I started I
1: was a handball coach of junior athletes so has uh, been going back to that that kind of age group. Uh, what fascinates me still today is. We don't have, you know, the, the the sports academy is growing around the world, and in football in particular, we have all these young athletes involved in training on a daily basis. But actually, the amount of science available on youth athletes' training is incredibly limited. So we, I think, we still apply too many paradigms that are uh, from senior athletes to to youth. I'm not sure we fully understand the implications of growth on. On training, planning, and moderation. Um, So we, we, I I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get better. Of course, you have even a bigger challenge when you move from working with somebody that is trying to win a gold medal at the Olympic Games with somebody that doesn't speak English as a second language and is 13 years old (laughs) and comes from a country where sport is a relatively new thing. Um, So it made me rethink about a lot of stuff that we do and and a lot of approaches we have i mean we are moving away from invasive measures as much as we possibly can so we we are challenged every day to try to look at ways that we can understand more how the children are coping with the training laws that they are imposed um, Not in basically because you know they they are minors so this is this is uh this is the challenge, but what surprises me of, of young athletes is that they can always surprise you, (laughs) you know, when, when you write them off and you think they're going nowhere. Sometimes they they pull a rabbit out of the hat and and you you have to reassess and reevaluate, especially when they are into the growth phase. Um, but the biggest challenge is how do you communicate complex things in a very simple manner is, uh, has been an eye opening.
0: I, I pretty should give credit to Alex Natera for for most of these uh, things that we're talking about. But one, one, one thing uh, specifically was your views on early special specialization, um, which which would be really interesting to hear.
1: Yeah, there is. You know, this is this is a big risk in uh, in youth sports, and I think it doesn't help the fact that the IOC has put the Youth Olympic Games on uh, because, of course, there would be. There'll be a drive to to get people to win medals at those games. Um, there is always a risk in. There is now a large evidence showing that um, uh, many people that win competitions at a very young age sometimes don't reappear at the senior level. Uh, however, on the other side, there are incredible success stories of people that have been consistently winning since they were children. If you just look at Usain Bolt, uh, he was a uh, you know he was already winning when he was. 15 16 you know and he's been carrying it on all the way up to senior level uh, but for each usain bolt there's probably about 50 to 60 kids that disappear um, because they get selected based on um, early maturation so there are some sports where you need to early specialization you know you're not going to succeed in gymnastics if you start doing gymnastics seriously at 16 years of age uh, you, you, you got no chance um, in the sports I'm closely involved with, uh, I think in athletics you can you can be a generalist developing a lot of skills, but you can see at a very early stage if somebody's more a sprinter than an endurance runner. <laughs> so there is no point in having somebody which is definitely a sprinter doing endurance activities and definitely endurance doing too much sprinting activities. You know, it should be part of developing their overall Uh, ability to move, that's for sure, but, you know, a sprinter is never going to turn into an endurance runner and vice versa. But in sports like team sports, uh, all the talent transfer projects uh, failed miserably, you know, if you just look at uh, talent transfer projects that sometimes countries do to find tall people that can play basketball or volleyball or handball, and they started after age 18 to twenty-five. They never produce teams that can challenge the big nations simply because the players in the big nations have a history of playing the game and developing those skills. Uh, whether with those talent transfer programs, you are lucky if you can find one or two players that can reach a level, but you still need the team to win a medal. So I think early specialization is important in some sports. Uh, Can be delayed in other sports, uh, and the the higher the reliance on skill, the earlier you have to start. So gymnastics, I think, is the perfect example. I don't know of anybody that started gymnastics age (laughs) eighteen that could challenge for a medal.
0: Cool. Well, I'm just again, I'm conscious of time. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your morning, up, Mark. I know you're a busy guy. So where, where can where can people keep in touch with? I know you've got obviously you've got the blog. Um, but where can keep people keep in touch with you on social media um, and things like that? Uh,
1: the blog is, is uh, dies up every once in a while because <laughs> I don't have time. But, yeah, the, the, the blog is probably the, the, one of the ways to read about a few things I write. Um, uh, the Twitter account as well. Uh, uh, it's Marco underscore Cardinale. Um, but I try to, uh, every time there is a, a paper published or, or a conference, I, I go to speak. I, I tend to share it on the, on the blog or on the, on the social media channels. So if they want to follow me, that's, that's probably the easiest way. But I'm, I'm very open to people contacting me. So um, my email addresses are available uh, on LinkedIn um, and I think it's very easy to find them anywhere else. So if anybody has any particular question or, or doubt or some advice they want, they can always contact me.
0: Brilliant. Well, again, like I say, I really appreciate your time, um, and thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and having a chat. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. Uh, thanks, mate. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 102 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Just before I let you go, I want to say a massive thanks to both Train With Push and VAL Performance for sponsoring the episode today. So the, the podcast couldn't go ahead with it without these guys' support, um, so I really appreciate them. And I would encourage you to check them both out at valperformance.com and trainwithpush.com. So I've got some exciting guests coming up, hopefully as always, over the next couple of weeks. Um, so really look forward to chatting to you soon. Hope you enjoyed this episode um, and I'll speak to you later.